Section 20 of The Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Bore Himself at Waterloo. The Story of the Nine Prussian Horsemen. I told you when last we met, my friends, of the important mission from the Emperor to Marshal Grouchy, which failed through no fault of my own, and I described to you how during a long afternoon I was shut up in the attic of a country inn, and was prevented from coming out because the Prussians were all around me. You will remember also how I overheard the chief of the Prussian staff give his instructions to Count Stein, and so learned the dangerous plan which was on foot to kill or capture the Emperor in the event of a French defeat. At first I could not have believed in such a thing, but since the guns had thundered all day, and since the sound had made no advance in my direction, it was evident that the English had at least held their own, and beaten off all our attacks. I have said that it was a fight that day between the soul of France and the beef of England, but it must be confessed that we found the beef was very tough. It was clear that if the Emperor could not defeat the English when alone, then it might indeed go hard with him, now that sixty thousand of these cursed Prussians were swarming on his flank. In any case, with this secret in my possession, my place was by his side. I had made my way out of the inn, in the dashing manner which I have described to you when last we met, and I left the English aide-de-camp, shaking his foolish fist out of the window. I could not but laugh as I looked back on him, for his angry red face was framed and frilled with hay. Once out on the road I stood erect in my stirrups, and I put on the handsome black riding-coat, lined with red, which had belonged to him. It fell to the top of my high boots, and covered my tell-tale uniform completely. As to my busby, there are many such in the German service, and there was no reason why it should attract attention. So long as no one spoke to me, there was no reason why I should not ride through the whole of the Prussian army. But though I understood German, for I had many friends among the German ladies during the pleasant years that I fought all over that country, still I spoke it with a pretty Parisian accent which could not be confounded with their rough, unmusical speech. I knew that this quality of my accent would attract attention, but I could only hope and pray that I would be permitted to go my way in silence. The forest of Paris was so large that it was useless to think of going round it, and so I took my courage in both hands and galloped on down the road in the track of the Prussian army. It was not hard to trace it, for it was rutted two feet deep by the gun-wheels and the cassons. Soon I found a fringe of wounded men, Prussians and French, on each side of it, where Bulov's advance had come into touch with Marbo's hussars. One old man with a long white beard, a surgeon, I suppose, shouted at me and ran after me still shouting, but I never turned my head and took no notice of him, save to spur on faster. I heard his shouts long after I had lost sight of him among the trees. Presently I came up with the Prussian reserves. The infantry were leaning on their muskets, or lying exhausted on the wet ground, and the officers stood in groups, listening to the mighty roar of the battle, and discussing the reports which came from the front. 
I hurried past at the top of my speed, but one of them rushed out and stood in my path with his hand up as a signal to me to stop. Five thousand Prussian eyes were turned upon me. There was a moment. You turn pale, my friends, at the thought of it. Think how every hair upon me stood on end. But never for one instant did my wits or my courage desert me. General Blucher, I cried. Was it not my guardian angel who whispered the words in my ear? The Prussian sprang from my path, saluted and pointed forward. They are well disciplined, these Prussians, and who was he that he should dare to stop the officer who bore a message to the general? It was a talisman that would pass me out of every danger, and my heart sang within me at the thought. So elated was I that I no longer waited to be asked, but as I rode through the army I shouted to right and left, General Blucher! General Blucher! And every man pointed me onward and cleared a path to let me pass. There are times when the most supreme impudence is the highest wisdom, but discretion must also be used, and I must admit that I became indiscreet. For as I rode upon my way, ever nearer to the fighting line, a Prussian officer of Uhlans gripped my bridle and pointed to a group of men who stood near a burning farm. "'There is Marshal Blucher. Deliver your message,' said he, and sure enough my terrible old grey-whiskered veteran was there, within a pistol-shot, his eyes turned in my direction. But the good guardian angel did not desert me. Quick as a flash there came into my memory the name of the general who commanded the advance of the Prussians. "'General Bulov!' I cried. The Ulan let go my bridle. "'General Bulov! General Bulov!' I shouted, as every stride of the dear little mare took me nearer my own people. Through the burning village of Planchenois I galloped, spurred my way between two columns of Prussian infantry, sprang over a hedge, cut down a Silesian hussar who flung himself before me, and an instant afterward, with my coat flying open to show the uniform below, I passed through the open files of the tenth of the line, and was back in the heart of Lobau's corpse once more. Outnumbered and outflanked, they were being slowly driven in by the pressure of the Prussian advance. I galloped onward, anxious only to find myself by the Emperor's side. But a sight lay before me which held me fast as though I had been turned into some noble equestrian statue. I could not move, I could scarce breathe as I gazed upon it. There was a mound over which my path lay, and as I came out on the top of it I looked down the long shallow valley of Waterloo. I had left it with two great armies on either side, and a clear field between them. Now there were but long ragged fringes of broken and exhausted regiments upon the two ridges, but a real army of dead and wounded lay between. For two miles in length, and half a mile across the ground, was strewed and heaped with them. But slaughter was no new sight to me, and it was not that which held me spellbound. It was that up the long slope of the British position was moving a walking forest, black, tossing, waving, unbroken. Did I not know the bearskins of the guard? And did I not also know, did not my soldier's instinct tell me, that it was the last reserve of France, that the Emperor, like a desperate gamester, was staking all upon his last card? Up they went, and up 
grand, solid, unbreakable, scourged with musketry, riddled with grape, flowing onward in a black heavy tide which lapped over the British batteries. With my glass I could see the English gunners throw themselves under their pieces or run to the rear. On rolled the crest of the bearskins, and then with a crash which was swept across to my ears they met the British infantry. A minute passed, and another and another. My heart was in my mouth. They swayed back and forward. They no longer advanced. They were held. Great heaven! Was it possible that they were breaking? One black dot ran down the hill, then two, then four, then ten, then a great scattered, struggling mass, halting, breaking, halting, and at last shredding out and rushing madly downward. The guard is beaten! The guard is beaten! From all around me I heard the cry. Along the whole line the infantry turned their faces, and the gunners flinched from their guns. The old guard is beaten! The guard retreats! An officer with a livid face passed me, yelling out these words of woe. Save yourselves! Save yourselves! You are betrayed! cried another. Save yourselves! Save yourselves! Men were rushing madly to the rear, blundering and jumping like frightened sheep. Cries and screams rose from all around me, and at that moment, as I looked at the British position, I saw what I can never forget. A single horseman stood out black and clear upon the ridge against the last red angry glow of the setting sun. So dark, so motionless, against that grim light, he might have been the very spirit of battle brooding over that terrible valley. As I gazed he raised his hat high in the air, and at the signal, with a low, deep roar like a breaking wave, the whole British army flooded over the ridge and came rolling down into the valley. Long steel-fringed lines of red and blue, sweeping waves of cavalry, horse batteries rattling and bounding, down they came onto our crumbling ranks. It was over. A yell of agony, the agony of brave men who see no hope, rose from one flank to the other, and in an instant the whole of that noble army was swept in a wild, terror-stricken crowd from the field. Even now, dear friends, I cannot, as you see, speak of that dreadful moment with a dry eye or with a steady voice. At first I was carried away in that wild rush, whirled off like a straw in a flooded gutter, but suddenly... What should I see amongst the mixed regiments in front of me but a group of stern horsemen in silver and grey, with a broken and tattered standard held aloft in the heart of them? Not all the might of England and of Prussia could break the hussars of Conflans, but when I joined them it made my heart bleed to see them. The major, seven captains, and five hundred men were left upon the field. Young Captain Sabatier was in command and when I asked him where were the five missing squadrons, he pointed back and answered, You will find them round one of those British squares. Men and horses were at their last gasp, caked with sweat and dirt, their black tongues hanging out from their lips, but it made me thrill with pride to see how that shattered remnant still rode knee to knee, with every man, from the boy trumpeter to the farrier sergeant, in his own proper place. Would that I could have brought them on with me as an escort for the Emperor. In the heart of the Hussars of Conflans he would be safe indeed, 
but the horses were too spent to trot. I left them behind me, with orders to rally upon the farmhouse of saint Ornay, where we had camped two nights before. For my own part I forced my horse through the throng in search of the Emperor. There were things which I saw then, as I pressed through that dreadful crowd, which can never be banished from my mind. In evil dreams there comes back to me the memory of that flowing stream of livid, staring, screaming faces upon which I looked down. It was a nightmare. In victory one does not understand the horror of war. It is only in the cold chill of defeat that it is brought home to you. I remember an old grenadier of the guard lying at the side of the road with his broken leg doubled at a right angle. Comrades, comrades, keep off my leg, he cried, but they tripped and stumbled over him all the same. In front of me rode a lancer officer without his coat. His arm had just been taken off in the ambulance. The bandages had fallen. It was horrible. Two gunners tried to drive through with their gun. A chasseur raised his musket and shot one of them through the head. I saw a major of cuirassiers draw his two holster pistols and shoot first his horse and then himself. Beside the road a man in a blue coat was raging and raving like a madman. His face was black with powder, his clothes were torn, one epaulette was gone, the other hung dangling over his breast. Only when I came close to him did I recognize it was Marshal Ney. He howled at the flying troops, and his voice was hardly human. Then he raised the stump of his sword. It was broken three inches from the hilt. Come and see how a marshal of France can die, he cried. Gladly would I have gone with him, but my duty lay elsewhere. He did not, as you know, find the death he sought, but he met it a few weeks later, in cold blood, at the hands of his enemies. There is an old proverb that in attack the French are more than men, in defeat they are less than women. I knew that it was true that day. But even in that rout I saw things which I can tell with pride. Through the fields which skirt the road moved Cambron's three reserve battalions of the guard, the cream of our army. They walked slowly in square, their colours waving over the sombre line of the bearskins. All round them raged the English cavalry and the black lancers of Brunswick, wave after wave thundering up, breaking with a crash and recoiling in ruin. When last I saw them, the English guns, six at a time, were smashing grape-shot through their ranks, and the English infantry were closing in upon three sides and pouring volleys into them. But still, like a noble lion with fierce hounds clinging to its flanks, the glorious remnant of the guard marching slowly, halting, closing up, dressing, moved majestically from their last battle. Behind them the guard's battery of twelve-pounders was drawn up upon the ridge. Every gunner was in his place, but no gun fired. "'Why do you not fire?' I asked the colonel as I passed. "'Our powder is finished.' "'Then why not retire?' "'Our appearance may hold them back for a little.' We must give the Emperor time to escape. Such were the soldiers of France. Behind this screen of brave men the others took their breath and then went on in less desperate fashion. They had broken away from the road, and all over the countryside in the twilight I could see the timid, 
scattered, frightened crowd who ten hours before had formed the finest army that ever went down to battle. I, with my splendid mare, was soon able to get clear of the throng, and just after I passed Ganap I overtook the Emperor with the remains of his staff. Soule was with him still, and so were Drouot, Lobau, and Bertrand, with five chasseurs of the guard, their horses hardly able to move. The night was falling, and the Emperor's haggard face gleamed white through the gloom as he turned it towards me. "'Who is that?' he asked. "'Is Colonel Gerard,' said Soule. "'Have you seen Marshal Grouchy?' "'No, sire. The Prussians were between.' "'It does not matter. Nothing matters now. Soule, I will go back.' He tried to turn his horse, but Bertrand seized his bridle. "'Ah, sire,' said Soule, "'the enemy has had good fortune enough already.' They forced him on among them. He rode in silence, with his chin upon his breast, the greatest and the saddest of men. Far away behind us those remorseless guns were still roaring. Sometimes out of the darkness would come shrieks and screams, and the low thunder of galloping hoofs. At the sound we would spur our horses and hasten onward through the scattered troops. At last, after riding all night in the clear moonlight, we found that we had left both pursued and pursuers behind. By the time we passed over the bridge at Charleroi, the dawn was breaking. What a company of spectres we looked, in that cold, clear, searching light, the Emperor with his face of wax, Saul blotched with powder, Lobau dabbled with blood. But we rode more easily now, and had ceased to glance over our shoulders, for Waterloo was more than thirty miles behind us. One of the Emperor's carriages had been picked up at Charleroi, and we halted now on the other side of the Sambre, and dismounted from our horses. You will ask me why it was that during all this time I had said nothing of that which was nearest my heart, the need for guarding the Emperor. As a fact, I had tried to speak of it, both to Saul and to Lobau, but their minds were so overwhelmed with the disaster, and so distracted by the pressing needs of the moment, that it was impossible to make them understand how urgent was my message. Besides, during this long flight, we had always had numbers of French fugitives beside us on the road, and however demoralized they might be, we had nothing to fear from the attack of nine men. But now, as we stood round the Emperor's carriage in the early morning, I observed with anxiety that not a single French soldier was to be seen upon the long white road behind us. We had outstripped the army. I looked round to see what means of defence were left to us. The horses of the chasseurs of the guard had broken down, and only one of them, a grey-whiskered sergeant, remained. There was Saul, Lobau, and Bertrand, but for all their talents I had rather, when it came to hard knocks, have a single quartermaster-sergeant of hussars at my side than the three of them put together. There remained the Emperor himself, the coachman, and a valet of the household who had joined us at Charleroi, eight all told, but of the eight only two, the chasseur and I, were fighting soldiers who could be depended upon at a pinch. A chill came over me as I reflected how utterly helpless we were. At that moment I raised my eyes, 
and there were the nine Prussian horsemen coming over the hill. End of section 20